actually be proven in a battle space like this? Well, I think you could get something that would follow a magnetic compass bearing. I don't think that would take, I don't think that would take too much. You know, is that the best? No, but if it's, if it's pushing a 500 pound warhead, you know, the, uh, wow. But if I, if you told me I had to deliver a 500 pound war, warhead, I'd, I'd, I'd say, look, why don't you give me a magnetic mine and I can get it into the channel. 100%. But again, I have to look at the force posture. I have to see what are they defending against and whatever they're defending against, I want to do something. So I might be saying, look, why don't you let me insert some agents across the beach? We call that. I could swim some agents in. You know, there's got to be some some cooperative people in the city of Sevastopol. And if I can get up on a roof and shoot 15 RPGs down into that harbor, you know, that's great. Go ahead, John. Uh, thank you. Uh, question for Chuck. Um, I believe about two or so weeks ago, the Ukrainian Navy announced they were forming a, a number of flotillas of the Riverine craft. But you were on the space when uh, that, that news was first announced, and you briefly spoke to you know, some of the opportunities that would, you know, open up for the Ukrainians in terms of, you know, SOF operations, you know, behind enemy lines, you know, assisting partisans, that kind of thing. What I wanted to ask you was, you know, if you've had time to, you know, look into Ukraine's, you know, river network, I, I would assume that, you know, every given river network is unique and has its, you know, own advantages and, you know, disadvantages and challenges to operate in. And I was curious if you could, if you had any insight into, you know, any unique, you know, challenges or advantages that would come from off from offing ukraine's river network well uh you know you need you need stuff that's navigable but you know you you've got if you have an f-470 inflatable zodiac it, you know it doesn't draw much water uh so you know a river will always pose a barrier to a conventional force but it it, it is no barrier at all to a you know naval special warfare or a you know in, in the u.s navy we call them special boat units and they can operate at sea or they can operate in the riverine environment and uh you know what you what you don't want to do i think at this point is you don't want to expose these craft uh needlessly and that would be essentially operating them in daylight or in a place where they could be interdicted by uh, helicopters or uh, russian fixed-wing aviation and what's their best purpose in a sort of highly contested environment well that would be you know, getting saboteurs and partisans and, and uh, intelligence assets, use the rivers to uh, get them across, uh, you know, especially places, you know, the Dnieper River is, it's like the Mississippi. I mean, it's very wide in these places. And, uh, you know, uh, a Russian force with that much water in front of them, they, they think they're going to be safe, Right. So I'd be looking at places where I have proximate targets to the river. And, uh, you know, I, I like to do round trip missions, not way missions. <laughs> so I'd be looking at a target that I could hit and get across the river. And, uh, you know, I, I'd also sort of, before I launched my first operation, I'd know what my 10th operation, right? I'd, I'd you know, I'd, uh, I'd really want to look at things and, and when I would stage these operations and, uh, you know, at least I want to plan as far out as the phases of the moon, right? So I noticed the moon was up today where I was. Uh, so that means it's going to be down for, I'm looking for dark and stormy nights. And, uh, so I want to get the most use possible out of those boats. Uh, and, uh, I don't think they're armed really to any more extent than possibly to get me out of a hot you know, a hot landing zone. Uh, otherwise, I just need a fast boat with maybe enough firepower to beat down anyone who's chasing me. But again, let's plan 10 missions before we even do one. But there are targets proximate to the river and we can handle that. answer the question, John. 100%. Thank you, Chuck. Hey, thank you, man. In language, you cut off. I don't know if you had a follow-up to your other question. Hey, not, not about that. I mean, I'd love to take a while here, but I see we have a bunch of folks, so. No, no one's got their hand up right now, so go for it. Sure. So we're seeing uh, up northeast of Harrison where the uh, dam is that there was – it's unclear whether it was a Russian strike that went wrong or a Ukrainian strike that, you know, barely went very wrong um, that could have accidentally breached the dam along the Seversky Donetsk River to the east of Stary Salty. And in your experience, you know, obviously it's not just like, oh, you blow up the dam and now the river's completely dry. 
we've seen Russian attempts, we've seen Ukrainian attempts towards changing the flow of uh, water features on the battlefield. We've seen that the water level in general in the Severski Donets has dropped uh, as compared to, you know, early winter when you had the snow melting and whatnot. Could you see some of these currently relatively impassable terrain features become more passable if, say, the water level was to drop down to a couple meters rather than, you know, 10 or 20 and it lost the flow? Well, you know, it's always sort of when you're, when you're talking dam, it's really a strategic target. And that sort of means a political target. And, it, you know, in my experience, nobody nobody messes with a dam unless the guys at the very top think it's a good idea. And for a couple of reasons, if you start blowing their dams, they'll start blowing your dam. Uh, if you've got the right explosive load, a dam becomes a sympathetic target, meaning you blow a hole in, you blow the right hole in a dam. And the ba- basically, the bigger, the more explosive you need and the more specialized sort of charge you need. But if you blow it the right way, the whole thing is coming down. So it, depending on the size of the reservoir you're releasing, um, you know, you think of the damage downstream and a good rule of thumb is it, depending on the damage inflicted, the downstream area could be impacted for as long as a month or more. But, you know, that depends on the weather drying out. So you think of how long it would take to dry out a place. And, you know, you you again, you do a terrain study downstream and what bridges are going to be vulnerable to literally a three-story tall, 30-mile-an-hour, one-mile-wide chunk of human soup, which is everything that exists in civilization, houses, washing machines, cars, everything hurtling down the water course. I mean, we've all seen, you know, the footage of what happens when when a dam fails. So, you know, do you really want to take out every bridge downstream for 20 miles uh you know so those those situation those those considerations come in so you can see why that you know that targeting decision is made farther up the chain of command i mean no company commander in the world is going to take it on himself to blow up a dam because it's you know, authorization right given higher exactly given higher. high above, above his pay grade i learned that on one course where i uh where I said, I'm just going to blow this. I said, no, you're not. No, you're not. Captain, you don't have the right angle, but I need to. That's a cool story. Cool story, bro. You're going <laughs> to gonna put engineers on it and pioneers, and you're going you're gonna to cover that bridge. Anyway, but yeah, good. Awesome. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I believe Axel has a question. Go ahead, Axel. Sure. Uh, CJ and I were chatting earlier today and yesterday. <clears throat> Kupiansk in the north. Um, bridge. Crossing that railway hub seems to be under attack. We talked about this six uh, weeks ago. Um, it seems that they're finally in the north. There's there's progress. If the Russian forces are cut off there, their connection to Belorod and Kursk, and therefore their main supply access to everything which flows down to Severodonetsk and Izium specifically, where they have massed again, is cut off. Would you consider that strategically the most sensible approach? I, I really would, a- absolutely. I, I really would. That's that that's something that hasn't been attacked, uh, you know. Or uh, you know, yeah. I I I think you've picked something that's uh, you know, that is a really good point. And uh, you know, isolating Isium, it, it it could be done absolutely, and that's that's the place to do it. Uh, again, there's some. You know, there's remember, we, we, you know, we're occupying some good defensive terrain and there is some good defensive terrain around there. Uh, speaking for the Russians, if they choose to, to defend it, um, man, I, I'm with you. You've got a good eye. That is uh, that is a place I'd definitely be looking. Absolutely. Good news bears. Apparently, I was going to say, apparently the bucket of uh, Russian Orthodox holy water is not as effective as Ukrainian Orthodox <laughs> holy water. Sorry, Axel. No, it's okay. I'm just saying that there's a support factor um, north of the uh, woods and the um, um, yeah the area west of Izium where the 93rd has been fighting so valiantly to support that action. I'm just wondering what they should be doing there. I, I'm look. I'm looking at the map right now. I got my finger on. There's there's five roads that come together right there, and a rail network as well. 
and it is it is prime real estate. You know, we were talking about. I mean, thus far, we've never. I, I don't think it, it hasn't begin. It hasn't yet been uh, Ukrainian brigade task group on Russian brigade task group, but that might be a place where that sort of application of force and risking that sort of uh, offensive action might be warranted. And again, everything that is battle planning should come together there. That would be a place where. I'd want to open the open the fight with my high Mars knocking out every command and control node that I could figure. I'd want to use my special operations forces and inserted by every means possible, helicopter, uh, everything I could do to get strike teams in, road ambushes laid uh, so that the Russians reacting to this this attack could be foiled and discombobulated behind their lines. But I agree with you. That is a that is a point of strategic importance and uh you know that whole access that whole axis the isium uh, you know now that that those forces in isium and uh, lehman are threatening sloviansk although we talked about the terrain around sloviansk not favoring a russian attack but that is a prime 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 piece of real estate and you hit it right on the head he gets a sticker thanks axel he does actually you you're the man yeah, good job. No, I'm just kidding. Good job. Axel, is there a follow-up or are we going to pass? Yeah, thanks, Lahuda. And uh, letting me go behind Patrick's, uh, sorry, behind Axel's question. This is going to let everybody down a little bit. But taking an unsophisticated look uh, at this, and, and given the weapons that uh, Ukraine's been supplied with recently, these rocket systems uh, that allowing them to you know, to range out further and play whack-a-mole with these high-value targets, encouraging um, and, and you know, they continue to receive these rockets and these systems, and they probably will. Or if, if the Ukraine military doesn't get fighter jets, if they don't get tanks, now I'm not looking for a prediction here, but what is the most they'll be able to accomplish over time with what they have, assuming they continue to get those weapons reinforced, maybe they get more of those weapons. Uh, you know, is there is there any chance of them winning out with these systems and that some of these some of these you know more offensive weapons? Um, I guess what's the ceiling on what they could do? Well, I, I I think right now they are sufficiently armed to prevent Russia from winning. And why do I say that? Well, Russia has this great superiority in armored vehicles, but one third of the world's javelin missiles are now west of the Dnieper River. Uh, so that that has a very bad effect on Russia's ability to project power through motorized rifle and armored spearheads. Uh, the Russians have a very capable air force, but they are not dominating the Ukrainians and pounding them from the air because a, a great portion, I think it's 25 percent of the world's Stinger missiles are also in that area. So. The Russians have got the honor of fighting the best equipped defenders who have ever existed in military history. And that's right now. And that's not counting the arriving high Mars and the, and the M seven triple sevens, the, uh, the one fifty five artillery pieces that, you know, you can, you can utilize uh, GPS guided munitions. So, if, if I'm a Russian uh, brigade task group commander and you're giving me a, a crossroad to take, look, I, I'm just not up against, uh, you know, a bunch of insurgents with RPG-7s, which could be bad enough. I mean, I was an insurgent with an RPG-7. <laughs> we did pretty good stuff. But now I have to worry about javelin missiles. I have to worry about the morale of troops that have been in the field since November. November. And uh, I, I don't know. I think this is a war that Ukraine can win. I think right now they, they are sufficiently uh, equipped to prevent Russia from winning it. Because also look at it this way. Look, Putin wants this over yesterday, right? He had his victory day speech all written and he didn't get to give it. And he's not going to be able to give it by next victory day. Because everything he captures, he has to hold on. And there isn't a friendly face in that whole country. I mean, sure, there are, for, there are some collaborators, but you know, what, what is it that, you know, the gentleman who ran the penal colony in Kherson, well, 
he's in an orthopedic ward right now on the fourth floor of the hospital because I just read a partisan report that said it didn't mention what room he was in, but it mentioned the floor. And it also mentioned that no doctors or nurses want to work at that hospital. Wow. So who treats the Russian wounded? So I, I think. Treats with the bucket. Right. And uh, look, it's, it's an ugly, tough, brutal war. But uh, look, what is the analog? What is the Russian analog to the, to the javelin? Atop a tank, atop, uh, you know, a, a variable profile anti, anti-armor guided missile. Well, they don't really have one. They've got cope cages. And, and, and they again, don't cope. And they don't cope, right? But look, you don't think a soldier sees through that right away? You don't see a lot of those anymore. You don't think they're like, hey, remember that night we stayed up all night welding this thing together? And they told us it was going to work? Yeah. So, I, again, I, I, don't, I don't see Putin winning this. I, I don't see him quitting. And, I, and I've said that, you know, and again, to get into his head, he has never seen a, a, a transition of power. He saw the deals he had to make to keep Yeltsin from being prosecuted when he took it over, right? Now he took it over and he's running a mafia state. And there is no way down the ladder for him, and he knows it. But eventually, the people around him are going to say, look, that's enough. Not now. They're not going to say it next week. They're not going to say it two weeks from now. But come Christmas, and I mean this Christmas, I mean the war going on, Till Christmas. Will the Russians he, be home at Christmas? Yeah, no. And when they don't, <laughs> when they and when they don't come home in Christmas, like no soldier in history has ever made it home for Christmas. Wow. When this goes on into the in into next spring and mud season, right? You know, if I had to guess, I see a, I see ma- major Ukrainian counterattacks this winter. That's what I see. Not now. And why? You know, they they've showed that they. They've got it. They lured them into a battle in, 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 in uh, you know, in, in uh, uh, geez, I'm, I'm blanking out the name, in, in Severodonetsk. You know, the Russians took the bait and were willing to fight them doorknob to doorknob instead of kilometer by kilometer. And that was a political order from the top in Moscow. Go fight them where they're strongest. That was the, that was the equivalent of go charge that machine gun nest on a hill. It was a political decision. They did it. And, uh, you know, it attrited those forces. Look, I know they, quote, won. They they captured what was left of Severodonetsk. You know, they bombed it from the Stone Age into the Gravel Age. And now, they, congratulations, Vlad. Good job. 100%. Uh, Clinton, you have a question? Not really a question, more of a comment. And I, I know the previous speaker mentioned this about... Uh, about Russia, I mean, I'd like to see less emphasis on on us even mentioning Putin. I mean, he really is a scumbag and a dirtbag, and and but he's one part of the problem, right? Part the other part of the problem is in fact the Russian people, uh, the Russian culture, uh, everything that Russia represents. I mean, it is a blight on humanity. It's a blight on civilization, and uh, and you know, whenever this war is done. Uh, they're going to have to deprogram. And when I say they, I mean the, the global community is going to have to deprogram uh, the Russian people. Um, because, uh, you know, the worry is when the next uh, tyrant comes along in Moscow, uh, the Russian people will be cheering that tyrant along as well. So, you know, we well, have a real culture problem in Russia that needs to be dealt with as soon as possible. Well, you, you know, I was reading, reading some economic data the other day. The Russians are already, uh, Putin is already putting forward some constitutional changes, which, believe it or not, he has not really had the Constitution that much before now. But these would allow him basically to be president for life. And uh, he practically owns that already. But another thing that is going on is the, the pensions are going to be uh, defunded. And he's pushing back the uh, retirement age. And people aren't going to dig that. Now, he has absolute control of that country, a- a- absolute control, and it is KGB capitalism, right? But he's already getting disconnected uh, uh, from the world economy, although I will point out that he makes $135 million a day selling gas to Europe right now, even as we speak. So a- as the world economies draw away from him, uh uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what the political, uh, you know, what the political things are. But again, you know, 
in defense of the Russian people, they've never known a democracy in, in a thousand years of their history. Never once. Never. You know, it's been the Tsar or it's been Lenin or it's been Stalin. Uh, you know, Gorbachev was the guy who let go of the handlebars. That didn't work. Then they had Yeltsin, who as a criminal was a piker compared to Putin, who is the richest man in the world right now, possibly the richest man who ever lived in history. And the, uh, you know, the, the king daddy of the world's biggest mafia economy. So I don't know. We'll have to see. Chuck, the notion in Ukraine right now, there is, um, there is the idea that population eventually, there is a part of population that supports the war, um, but somewhat reluctantly and obviously there is part of population that first either volunteers or fights themselves or supports the fight in one way or another. And uh, eventually the society will get tired sooner or, or later. It's normal. And uh, the notion that actually kind of starts to circulate in Ukraine is that all of us have to prepare for war because the war will touch literally everyone sooner or later. And you can be IT specialist right now, sit somewhere somewhere in the office and donates money to our, I don't know, Maria Aid or another fund. Uh, but eventually the war will touch you as well, because it's the war that is existential, and the war is probably not going to end anytime soon. It's an, a war between one nation and another, and uh, a war till the very end, until something cracks within Russia. And we're not seeing it anytime soon, and every single essentially Ukrainian has to, to come to grips with the fact that he will be involved not just in any way or some way by volunteering or helping, but by actually directly engaging. So what do you think about that and what should society get ready for? Because the the vibes are kind of grim, um, and, but they're realistic, but kind of grim right now. Can you Chuck, did you uh, catch any of uh, Walter's uh, I, Yeah, question? I I did. I um, you know, it, 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 here's another reason why I think we're going to win. This this is essentially a military adventure for Mr. Putin, and on the other side of the forward edge of the battle area, it is a battle for survival. And every Ukrainian and the entire world has seen the atrocities of which his troops are capable: rape, murder looting. No Ukrainian has forgotten what Stalin did to Ukraine. He killed three million people. He starved them to death. He, he sent whoever he could lay his hands on to Siberia and worked them to death. The Ukrainians know what's at stake. It is, it, it's not, it, it, it's everything. So in the meantime, you've got Putin and he's, he's, he's feeding in Siberian motor rifle divisions into this fight. Not the guys from Moscow, not the guys from Kursk, not the guys from St. Petersburg, because their mothers will show up in the street. So, you know, and, and I agree. Uh, you know, this, this is not something that I could sit by and watch either. You know, everybody needs to do something. Because, look, I, this war is not going to be over this year. It, it is not. But I guarantee you this, Russia is not going to win it this year. They are not. And everything they hold, everything they get, they've got to hold. And that's going to start bleeding them dry. The U.S. did a great job of holding on to Afghanistan, right? The British did a great job holding on to Afghanistan at the height of empire and the Soviet Union at the height of their empire. You can't hold down a people. Yeah, thank you. Well, again, yes, there is no other way but victory. No. And uh, this is what we're looking forward to. But again, it's more of a realistic vibe right now kind of encompasses everyone that it's gonna get rather worse or significantly worse because prior to becoming better and get ready for that and uh, clench our teeth and grind through this uh, that's what i essentially uh, meant. Uh, absolutely i there you know but by making them fight for every inch of territory every inch and
mine them every they're going to have to if they want an inch they're going to have to take it and then they're going to have to hold it and nobody's been able to do that you just look in the 20 in the 20th century it hasn't been able no one's been able and uh russia's not going to do with ukraine 100 leonard's got a question for you then blake yes thank you yoda I have a, just a brief question for Chuck, and uh, this is going to be more, much more of a kind of a general uh, gut feeling kind of thing, Chuck. But uh, I ask you this essentially for your perspective as an American citizen. And I'm a Canadian, but I have you know, significant family in the United States. And we've, I've had lots of exposure to... Um, uh, my, I have an uncle, for example, who's, who served on the uh, the Mighty Mo, the USS Missouri. Oh, great! Um, and but this this is more of a general kind of a question because I'll tell you that the sentiment in Canada is more like right now. If we take it right across the board, coast to coast, I think the sentiment is more like: Can we rely? 100% upon the uh, the level of commitment here. Oh, um, lost you. Uh-oh. you have me now? Can you hear me now? Yeah, you're good. Go, Go on. on. We can hear sorry. you. Oh, okay, sorry, Chuck. I don't know if Chuck can hear me. Should I carry on with the question? Or... Go ahead. Okay, super. So, um, sorry, about, I don't know what that interruption was, but the, just to make a long question short, um, do you feel that there is a, 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 a deep level of commitment within the the U.S. citizenry, and by that I mean like the voting public, again, coast to coast, top to bottom. Uh, do you think that when push comes to shove, that th- there is a depth of commitment to the Ukrainian cause here? Um, and I, I just kind of appreciate just a gut, a thumb, you know, a gut impression, a thumbnail sketch, whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, I base I see that uh, from a background where, as I say, uh, Part of the part of the gang was on the on the mighty mole, and the other part uh, survived the blitz in London. So, um, uh, you know, there's a, a a real depth of uh, perception here, certainly on on the Canadian side of the border. And I'm just w- wondering if you think that that same uh, kind of thing could be said to uh, prevail in the U.S. or not. So, th- thank you a lot, Chuck. And don't feel free to dodge it if you think that's too dicey a question, but. Uh, I'll leave that with you. Thanks. I think we lost Chuck. Uh, he's coming back up. All right. I don't think it was too dicey for Chuck. I think he'll answer it. Uh, everyone's dropping, coming up and down, up and down. Sorry about that. Um, just another, some housekeeping. Thanks for um, for letting people know we're here. Uh, Getting, uh, got a little, I think you have me again. Got a little, <laughs> 100%. So just uh, yeah. so for some people, they, they get a little concerned. Um, we had a busy night last night. And uh, some people didn't have questions ready, but they requested a speaker. But since we had a half a dozen, a dozen people trying to speak, we cycled people down. So just for transparency, you know, it's not fair to leave you in the speaker's channel if you don't have a question and, and someone else is uh, coming up. So I got a very long, long DM about it. I'm not going to address the person's name. But uh, unfortunately, if, if you don't have a question uh, and you had to go get your notes that you wrote somewhere else in the house, and um, we have other people coming up to speak. Please don't take it personal. We're not out to get you. We're just out to give everyone a kick at the can. So, Chuck, go ahead. I don't know if you heard all of Leonard's questions. I, I, I did. It was a very good question. I, listen, I, I think the American people are absolutely behind this, you know. And, look, the 82nd Airborne uh, is being, uh, you know, there are four deployed units of the 82nd Airborne. As I understand, the 101st Airborne is also standing up. So America is pre-deploying forces uh, into Poland and Uri- and uh, Romania. You know, that is a statement. Um, there isn't a single American that I know who wants to sit by and watch Russia take a bite out of Ukraine. I mean, we've, we've got some people uh, who get on television every day, but their job is to space out the commercials, right? And to be as ridiculous as they possibly can. There doesn't seem to be, you know, whenever I'm north of the border, I always enjoy listening to the CBC because people don't yell and scream at each other. They uh, they simply give me the facts. But I, I think the United States is squarely behind this effort. And I think politically, the people of the United States are behind it as well. And uh, 
you know, I, I, nobody nobody's going to stand by and let uh, let this guy get away with it. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate that uh, uh, that assessment there, Chuck. Thank you. Thank you, sir. All right, All right. Blake, you have a question. Yeah. Hey, Chuck. Um, thanks for taking my question, guys. Um, I don't know if you can get into too much into this, but I was just curious about how it works with partisans. And last time you were on, you were talking about training partisans and things like that, and it occurred to me. You're behind enemy lines. It's probably pretty difficult to do. Can you touch on kind of how that works a little bit, if at all? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we've got uh, in American special operations, uh, we've got we've got the SEAL team on one hand, and we do a lot of things. One of the things we concentrate on is what's called direct action, which is you send the SEALs in, and they go blow something up, or they kidnap a general, or they whatever we're going to do. The Green Beret, uh, Army Special Forces, their job principally is to train and uh, actuate uh, partisans behind enemy lines. Uh, Both groups, the Green Beret and the SEALs, there's an overlap. Uh, In the SEAL teams, we call that mission the MTT, Mobile Training Team. Uh, We have the capability to operate behind enemy lines and interface with partisans as well uh that that's a bit that's a bit more of a mean it's not something that we're absolutely trained to do and do carry out uh if a seal team arrives in an area uh one of the first things we do is establish an intelligence network of our own so we'll run our own intelligence assets and uh you know uh it's it's the that's the for that's the first step uh, uh, I think we might have lost Chuck again. Chuck, are you there? Oh, Chuck's, Chuck. Uh, we wait on Chuck to be in breath here. Uh, I'm sure he'll, he might have to do a hard reset. Sometimes that happens. And uh, here we go. Maybe he's coming back up right now. Is that because he didn't do the barbecue together? Because he didn't come over for a barbecue. So I'm just uh, EWing him into entirely. Yeah, we'll wait for that, John. You got the co-host? Uh, the do something related related here. Oh, cool. Sure. Uh, that's uh, uh, to, to briefly segue um, while we wait for uh, Chuck to return. Um, I would encourage everybody, uh, if you are able to, please consider making a contribution or donation to Maria Aid. Maria Aid provides critical uh, non-lethal military uh, aid and assistance to uh, Ukraine frontline forces from everything from ballistic stick vests, thermal optics, tourniquets, bandages, and other medical equipment uh, to drones, the really the whole shebang. Um, these donations, they deliver this life-saving equipment. They, they procure and deliver this life-saving equipment. There is no overhead. 100% of donations and contributions go directly um, to frontline Ukrainian soldiers, and it does genuinely help save lives. So I would encourage everybody, if you're financially able to consider making a donation or contribution. Yeah, please do do that. Uh, we are a 100% volunteer organization. No pizza parties, no admin costs. Uh, not 10% on the dollar, 0% on the dollar. So uh, thanks for helping out. And, and, you know, we have a big space today, and it's going to be rocking and rolling. I have a feeling all through the evening we're going to have some probably surprise guests come in. Uh, we have Chuck. He is doing his best. Uh, his, uh, his phone is afraid of him, so it's cut off, um, and we'll be in momentarily. Uh, in the meantime, we've got Greg and uh, Daniel. Uh, do you have a question or comment for the panel, Daniel? Daniel, you there? We have a long lineup of people coming up to speak, so if you don't have a question, we'll just cycle you down. Come back later when you got one. And Greg, what about you? Welcome. Mic check there. Loud, clear, and no barbecue yet. No barbecue. All right, I'm just going to go check the other thing. John and Axel, I'll leave it up to you. Hold on. So, John, what do we know about Kupiansk and the movements there earlier this evening? So, as of um, the moment, I have only seen one source reporting on a potential strike on the bridge. Uh, hopefully, more clarification will um, emerge soon. I checked on firms um, immediately after I saw that uh, potential report. Um uh, however, there's nothing on firms in the area, and if it was relatively recent, then it would take several hours to show up on firms, and it's also over a river, so, you know, if there's, there's a fire, maybe may be um, swiftly extinguished. 
So we'll have to wait and see it for, you know, for confirmation, obviously. Um, in terms of troop movements, generally the Russians have been moving large amounts of supplies and equipments through the area, and that's more or less been the case, you know, for the past, you know, few months since Izium fell and they attempted the, um, uh, you know, attempted to push down along the E-40 to Slovyansk initially and against Barvenkov. There's been, you know, Russian supply train, well, by trains, I mean supply convoys and, you know, other movements pouring through the area consistently for months now. I'm back, you guys. I'm sorry. Um, we already went through the whole northern front. Oh, excellent. Good. All without War is over. Good. The Russians capitulated. Hey, could you get me? No, could, could you get me one of the Putin loses T-shirts and just mail it? <laughs> you have to tell us the size. Uh, it's a, a triple gigantic uh, Bigfoot size is what I take. There's one that says. <laughs> The Ukrainians destroyed the Russians, and all I got was this lousy T-shirt. Is that the one you want? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was there, comma, really. It's uh, for the youngins. That's a 1990s reference when custody shirts became a thing. They my did. kid and my money go to go to Western, and all I got is this lousy T-shirt. All right. Horrible joke. Guys, I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to get off in a minute. I'm afraid, but uh, I'm happy to field a couple of uh, well-timed. Paul. Paul's got a provocative question. And I don't mean negligee provocative. Go ahead, Paul. Hey, guys. And hi, Chuck. Hi, Paul. Okay, so Chuck, I, you know, I like what you said earlier um, about, you know, all the people you know are like, you know, supporting Ukraine. Um, and, you know, I, it just so happens that last night I was, you know, watching a podcast and it was uh, some former special operations guys and you know, I, I will say this. The only thing that concerns me is I am noting an increased isolationist tone um, within, you know, within at least the play, the people I follow, right? And, you know, there's enough problems at home, blah, blah, blah. But nonetheless, they still supported Ukraine, mostly just because we had this treaty uh, for when Ukraine gave up their nukes that, you know, we, we would come to their aid, right? And that was kind of like the only reason... I also would say in their defense, I mean, I think it's a good thing that the most highly trained soldiers and in, in, in special operators in, 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 our, in our service are the most wary of war. That's a positive thing in general to not just jump into conflicts again. But just to say, I'm curious what your sense is. You know a lot more special operators than I do in the United States, and I think it's a, an important point to, to hone in on a little bit because <clears throat> they are kind of held at a – you know, looked at in high regard by American society and those who are supporters of the military. So I think they have an outweighed um, impact on, you know, United States civilian morale towards the war in Ukraine. And so I'm, I'm just curious your, your your feedback on that and what can be done, if anything, to kind of, I will say this about that, uh, about what they were saying. They had a very short-term outlook with regards to the how important the war in Ukraine is for the United States from a geopolitical strategy point of view, for you know, from from my perspective, it's, this is a, a, a once in a lifetime opportunity to crush our, our one of our, our main competitors in the world indirectly without direct conflict. Not to mention the genocide to stop genocide and all all the moral reasons to support Ukraine. But what are your thoughts on that, Jeff? Well, uh, you know. I, I will say this: you, you'd be surprised. The higher you go up the special operations food chain, the more peacenik we become. Um, and I think that's because you see a lot of war, and you realize, uh, you know, it, it, I don't know. You realize a lot of things about war. Uh, from me being on this podcast, so this is going to sound a bit ridiculous, but when you when you hear special operations guys uh, on social media and they're talking about the war. There's a little bit of a of a sampling error because a great proportion, I won't say the majority, but the great proportion of the guys I know are already over there. You know, they voted with their feet. And those are the kind of guys that don't get on social media, you know, opine about the war. And uh, they don't post pictures of themselves from the front and they don't get their pictures taken. But uh, they're there now, the least adventurous of them. And I don't mean to disparage them at all. Because I'm not, uh, you know, they're in Poland training guys. Uh, other guys are forward deployed. Uh, they're training, they're planning, they're uh, they're assisting their colleagues. Uh, so, uh, you know, when you see a guy on social media and he's talking about it, that 
that is kind of what he's doing. And uh, he's on social media and he's talking about it. So, uh, you know, I, I understand the isolationism. Um, you know, we spent 20 years in Afghanistan where I don't think we should have spent 20 months. Uh, you know, I didn't get to make that call. I don't know anyone. I guess there's not a lot of people on Pennsylvania Avenue who read history. Alexander the Great couldn't hold uh, Afghanistan. He skedaddled from it. The British at the height of empire couldn't hold it. The Soviets at the height of their power couldn't hold it. And we spent 20 years there only to abandon tens of thousands of people. We just turned their back on them and walked away. So I, I can see a special operations guy not really digging the next war. And especially if he fought for 10 or 15 years in Afghanistan. And I will say, I did not fight in Afghanistan. I was there briefly as a correspondent. Uh, but, you know, you've got guys, it's almost, I mean, Yehuda can tell you this, it's almost incomprehensible to think of a guy with 10 combat action or 10. I mean, I've got two. They almost killed me. I got two of them. So, you know, there are some people who don't think America should be the world's policeman. Uh, some people go a little farther. They don't think America should uh, help other nations change a flat tire on the side of the road. Uh, but again, I won't say it's the majority of my friends, but a significant portion of my friends are over there fighting right now. That's okay. great. Can I follow up on this? Uh, Paul, I presume you... Hold on, hold on Axel. Uh, Chuck, do you have to run? Uh, you know what? I've got uh, I've got literally 10 minutes. I, okay, and I'm okay. so sorry to time that you got. No, 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 no. I just want to make sure. Very quick question. Very good question. I think Paul is absolutely right. There's a lot of them on social media. Could you reach out to Jocko Willink and find out how we could convert him to support freedom in Ukraine? Well, you know what? I, I'm one of those team guys that never talks bad about other team guys. Uh, uh, you know, he's he he has his own opinions. Um, uh, you know, I I don't I don't know Jocko. You know, I I never I didn't operate with him. Uh, I don't know him. Uh, I would venture to say this, that he has a minority opinion um, among special operations guys. And again, you know, there are guys that, uh, and it's hard not to come to this conclusion. If you spend two decades of your life, probably the best portions of your life, uh, playing bet your ass for the United States government, and you come to this conclusion, and perhaps Jocko has come to this conclusion, that you were willing to die for your country, but your country was willing to catch a cold for you. And for some people, that is a huge revelation. And there are people like Oliver Stone, and then he just did a 180 against his country, right? But there are other people who realize, look, nobody dragged you into the SEAL teams, right? Nobody made you re-enlist. Nobody made you go to jump school. Nobody made you go to BUDS. Nobody made you volunteer for a second or a ter third or a fourth or a fifth tour in combat. You, you did that, right? And, uh, uh, you know, it ain't for everybody. And some of the people, you spent 20 years in the teams, and it turns out it really wasn't right for you. So, again, you know, Jocko's got his own opinion, and he is absolutely entitled to it. And he has a certain sort of follower that, that follows him. And uh, they might not be the same kind of people who read Foreign Affairs magazine. Right. And uh, they may not be the same kind of people who see uh, what Russia is up to in the world and what sort of a country Russia is and why it might really be necessary to draw this line and hold it. But he's entitled to his opinion. I don't agree with him, but, you know, good on. Thank you. No, for fair. Thank that's you. For fair. This. Sure. There, we got to remember there are people sometimes people join in the organization like military, they join, and you know, whatever military organization. Uh, then they leave. They, you know, a lot of organizations across the board, especially in government. Um, you know, you're never going to find 100% buy-in on every issue. And uh, you know, obviously, um, you know, the military is no different. I mean, I'd say it's a lot better at at conformity. It's the nature of the business. But uh, you know, we can't explain away why some people have their opinions. Um, and I think that was a very measured and respectful reply, Chuck. Well, you know, you got to be a politician if you're a lieutenant commander, I think. <laughs> We're glad to have you here. Well, that was Sometimes a great, great question. I think Paul was right, see, and I think Paul and I agree on this. We see that a lot of young people are currently forming their opinions on the basis of this input. And it's very isolationist. It's very dark. 
and it's very much based on exactly the experience you highlighted from Iraq, from Afghanistan, from losses, from a continuously defensive kind of mindset, as opposed to the happy warriors of winning the Cold War. Yeah, and I don't know if I lost. Did I lose you guys? Am I still here? No, I'm clear. Oh, okay. You know, and I, I, I think that uh, I, I think that every every special operations guy will go through that, and uh, you may, you know, that this is this is probably the too much information personal uh, thing, but I, I don't know a single SEAL who's not divorced. You know, maybe more than once. And that there's a point in your career where you're going to realize that you have literally busted your body up for two decades. You have you have been all over the world. You've been fighting. You never got to see your kids. You know, you're you're maybe twice divorced. You're sleeping in on a on a pallet in your in your buddy's guest bedroom, and you kind of wonder, what did I do that? Right? There are some guys that have that experience. There are other guys that say, "Look, I was really lucky." I was lucky to have made it through buds. I was lucky to have got this training. You know, and the, there there is no ceiling in the in the seals. They don't say, you know, you just sit there, you're a door kicker. This is, you know, remember your role. That isn't it, you know. The outfits I was in, look, you were expected to read. We're going overseas, you know. Hey, in my day, it's, you know, you better have been up on dialectical materialism, right? Did you read Che Guevara's books? I did. The guys in the hills did, you know. And then in my day was, have you read the Quran? You know, you better have read it with the commentary. You better be able to tell me the difference between a Sunni and a Shia. You better be able to tell me when Ashura is and why those festivals happen. You be able to, you better be able to tell me all this stuff. So there are some guys that got into that, and these are the people that that rose into command. And there were some people that you know they were interested in other things. So. And again, ab- absolutely. And but people's experiences are the things that inform their opinions. And look, his, his opinion could change. You know, it, hey, it might. And uh, you know, uh, I, I also think you know, it's not just what people say; it's the arena in which they say it. I don't really like echo chambers that much, and uh, I'm always very wary of. Uh, you know, when I first joined the SEAL teams, nobody knew what they were. You know, it it, it just, you know, nobody knew. Now, unfortunately, you know that you go to the you, you you do a tour in the SEAL teams and you run for Congress, and I'm not really a big fan of that myself. You know, I, I, I'm not. You got to be a team player, like Dan was there, SEAL, right, Chuck? He is a. You know what? He made the very last day because he was doing so well. There, there's somebody that I will I will dish. You know. <laughs> Really? You did so well. The, the instructor said, we don't care that you've made it. We don't care that you you went to the last mission on the island. You're still not going to do it. Wow. Bad man. You're a bad dude, I tell you. Yeah, yeah. I saw that interview, and it always struck me as so bizarre that uh, the, dis- the dissonance. You know, I did it twice, the second time with a broken leg. And, uh, yeah, exactly. But you know what? It would have been Darwinism if they let into the team. He would have been, you know, he would have within a week, he would have turned himself into the rarest gas in the universe. Right. Poof. And he'd be gone. But anyway, you know, so that that's another reason why I don't I don't like all the sort of seal glamour, because that's exactly the kind of guy who thrives in that. Right. You know, that that's exactly the zero personality, zero information zero anything look i was almost a seal get out of my sight man did, well, you, guys, ever I, manage to, did you ever manage to become a ranger before i don't I, I i don't think he did i i i don't i don't think so he was uh i i don't know he did he did go to buds but he didn't graduate and it to me and to anyone in the seals it it doesn't matter how close you got to graduation because you graduate from buds, you don't know anything. Now, now the real training starts. Buds is to select people and to see how badly they want. You know, you it's said funny. something in, in our in our military. If you if you make it to the last day of a course and you're kicked off, it, it means they actually hate you it, <laughs> because they think you're a menace. You know that 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 way of exit is reserved for the most dangerous and and unsuitable candidates. You know, because believe me, there's paperwork. Somebody had to type a paragraph and state 
why the Navy has spent a million dollars training this guy and he still is not suitable. <laughs> yeah, it, it's better to it's better to have been, uh, removed from training, say halfway through, right? But to do it at that point, it means that you might be passing the physical, but you just don't have what it takes to be on a cohesive, like to be a cohesive member of the team. Um, and the guy brags about it. He goes, "I did, I completed the training, but I just didn't graduate." It's like yeah. the worst possible scenario. Yeah, exactly. So now he's fully qualified to carry a telephone pole over his head, and he can just do that as much as he wants. You said something very interesting earlier, which I liked a lot, because it reflects what I've learned from other people so far, and I think it is absolutely clear. Those who are serious about it, I paraphrase, are already there. They're quiet warriors. That, that's it exactly. Right. And uh, the people that come to mind who are there, you are never going to see these guys' faces. And they don't have social media accounts, and they never will. And they never will. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't either. But I had to do something, even if it's just making maps. And, uh, you know. Um, but like I say, it, it's not just what people say. It's the arena in which they say it. And, uh, you know, some I, I respect everyone's opinion. I may not share it. I may not even think much of their opinion, but uh, every experience informs opinion. And, uh, you know, and again, the arena in which y Ukraine is being discussed is, uh, you know, I haven't listened to his podcast, but I, I, I don't think he's discussing, you know, the merits of uh, Ukrainian intervention with, uh, you know, with uh, people who understand the situation fully. Or, uh, you know, I don't think there's a lot of six-syllable words being used in that venue. But again, you know, again, I don't want to make a crack, really. But, uh, you know. Then let's focus on the Warriors. Um, we've heard a lot about how very effective and also very quiet Ukrainian armed forces and their special forces have been. Uh, that they've infiltrated the other side. That they have been planting minds that they've been very very effective that they've even gone into her song scout out the place hide come back out and bring data back it seems that the, this human intelligence they're bringing to the forefront is quite substantial how do you see them well i see it there uh, you know i i think that they're they're trained up to a nato stand and now they're being battle tested and remember if you send someone into kerson kerson that you know, the guy probably lives there, right? He probably lives there. And uh, I know they're capable of, of, of going through the lines. And and again, I mean, this, this is another reason why I think, you know, it, it's going to be very difficult for Russia to grind out a win here because it's an away game for the Russians and it's a home game for the Ukraine. And, uh, you know, I, I think the quality of their special forces is, uh, is exceptional. And, uh, you know, and now they're, they're battle-tested. If you're still in the Ukrainian special forces, 200 days into this war, you're you're pretty good. You're pretty good. Probably one of the best in the world now. If you think yeah. about everything, the Ukrainian military has been the most highly tested and uh, confirmed, you know, uh, force around. Really, a absolutely. I mean, we've joke made this joke a couple times, but it's 